Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. Welcome everyone to another jam-packed episode of Apocryphal Australia. But before we get into our stories for today, Stephen, I understand that we've had some things come into our mailbag. Yes, Mike, and when I say the mailbag, I mean the mailbag. We had a letter. (laughs) A real physical paper letter. Yes, indeed. Most of the mail we've received has has been about the Great Kimbo Rail disaster, which we discussed, I think it was Mm. a previous episode. Mm. And I was absolutely thrilled to receive a letter from Mrs Elsie Carruthers of Beriberi in New South Wales, who claims that she was a witness to the Great Kimbo Rail disaster. Mm. Now, the the rail disaster, to jog people's memories, was when a train laden with dangerous goods was heading full pelt towards the town of Kimbo, unaware that the new bridge that had just been opened just outside Kimbo, was of a unique design in that the bridge did not cross the entire river. It was meant to cross. Ah, that's right. Resulting in the rail disaster. Now, I I had high hopes with Mrs Carruthers being an expert eyewitness, and I contacted her, and she could recall the train plunging from the Brow Bridge to its watery doom, and she recalls that it made a, and I quote, Big splash. You can't get much more colourful than that. No, I was hoping for a little more detail, but that's that's all she had, unfortunately. However, this did prompt me. We had some more emails from people wanting to know what, what happened to the principal players involved in the disaster. And I managed to find out a little bit more from some court reporters that uh, that, that filed reports but that were never really published. And... Just with the principal players, Ron Jones-Jones, who was the driver of the Doom train, actually survived the crash. Oh, really? Mm. But he was killed when he was about to give evidence at the subsequent inquest. He was just about to enter the court when a piano fell on him. Well, that's something he wouldn't have seen coming. I know. No, we definitely didn't see it coming because otherwise he would have got out of the way. Ewan Twigilt, sorry, the station master who kept meticulous records regarding the times of the trains, oddly enough, was also killed when he was about to appear at the inquest. And in an astonishing coincidence, he too was killed by a falling piano. Look, this is extraordinary stuff, Stephen. But wait, there's more. Jimmy Wicklick, the spokesman, spokesperson for the company that built the ill-planned bridge, was also succumbed to a wayward piano. James Thurpent, a bridge expert who was slated to give evidence about the inappropriate design of the Brout Bridge piano. Uh, Edgar Lennox, engineer on the train piano. And Wally Brout. Now, he was the man behind the disaster. He was the one who, for 38 minutes, um, was, was Premier of New South Wales, signed off on the bridge, declaring it should be named after him and it should be unique. As I, I think I mentioned in the episode, he went on to become a well-known member of the judiciary. However, when he retired from the judiciary, he managed to gain the lease on his old rooms above the courthouse. And here he indulged his other passion, which was music. He was a talented pianist himself, and he also founded the Brout Piano School for gifted and very, very strong pianists. 
and he died at the ripe old age of 102. This is an extraordinary rash of keyboard-related deaths, Stephen. Anything suspicious? No, 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 nothing at all. A little bit surprised you even raised that, Michael. My turn of mind as I was reading too many of those murder mystery books, I'd say. (laughs) And now, have you got any gems from the mailbag? Yeah, nothing, no physical letters, I'm afraid. This has all come in via the email and the ether. And Esme Talaganzi has written in, and she's certain that we'd love to know what her grandmother had for dinner on April 6, 1955. I can't wait. And Otto McGreffin has offered to tell us all about the time he stubbed his toe on a statue of the infamous pie thief, Julia Alpen. And Sadie Messerschmidt promises that she'll invent something really interesting as long as we pay her a handsome stipend and call her the Enlightened One. Now, I'm sorry, Sadie. I think we'll pass on that for the moment. But if we're really scratching around for material, we could be in touch. We could be, yes, indeed. All right. Now, it's time for us to dive into our findings, Stephen. What what have you come up with first for this week? I mentioned last week that I wanted to look at the Sunbury Music Festival. It's a little-known fact that the Sunbury Music Festival originally began life as a celebration of sun, sex and brass bands. For three days, the hills around the outer Melbourne site reverberated to songs of peace, love and military precision as the country's top brass bands marched uphill and down Nude Swimming Hole whilst playing Sousa marches and up-tempo pop songs for the young'uns. This came as a little bit of a surprise to me because I actually just associated somebody with really, really loud rock music. However, the format of relaxed heathen activities coupled with the brass band music was a small affair to begin with, and the organiser, Neville Critchley, soon saw that the festival was only going to prosper if he got international brass bands to play. He decided he'd put all of his resources into making the 1972 Sunbury Festival the biggest, brassiest festival in the world. But he failed to realise that his festival clashed with the World Championships battle of the bands in Grithausen in Germany. Many of the bands he hoped to attract were therefore contractually tied to this overseas competition and Critchley only had the use of the land in Sunbury until the cows, quote, looked ripe to burst. In order to avert financial ruin, he booked a number of bands believing to be them to be folk and amateur brass bands that would fit into the spirit of the program with little notice. Thus it was that Critchley spent the entire festival with his hands clamped over his ears yelling at the top of his voice as Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs assumed the mantle of loudest band in the world. The few remaining Australian brass band members could not hope to complete unaided, so they appropriated a few spare speaker cabinets and heavy metal, brass, was born. Neville went on to sell his rights to the festival. It, of course, went on to become one of the better-known and loudest musical events in the world. Now, Steve, this is what we're on about. There are so many misapprehensions about history, what's gone on in the past, and part of what we're doing is trying to right those wrongs and bring the truth to the world. Yes, there's always little little gems hidden behind the, the well-known stories. Mm. If there's a chance to revise history... We'll be the revisionists. Absolutely.
Michael, I understand you've got another fascinating individual to look at this week. Oh, yes, this is a figure from the past. And ladies and gentlemen out there, if you hear my papers rustling, that's because that's the evidence of my research here. And today I'm talking about Felicity Paraparap, who was born in 1913, but sadly we don't have a date of death for her, or even, even any idea whether she's still alive or not. So let's see what I've found out. Felicity Paraparap was Australia's only internationally accredited politician hunter. In this highly specialised field, Felicity Paraparap was renowned for her stealth, cunning and her humane returning them to the wild philosophy, an attitude that was derided at the time but is now considered standard practice. Felicity Paraparap was born, as I said, in 1913 in Melbourne, but was sadly orphaned at the age of 10 when a Sunday school picnic went terribly wrong. She spent her adolescence at the St Dismas Orphanage and Foundry, a unique establishment that produced some of the finest and cheapest wrought ironwork in Melbourne. A visit to the orphanage from the Honourable Cyril Hardybuck in 1926 fired Felicity Paraparap's imagination. Hardybuck was renowned for his embodiment of political principles, such as the desire to serve the public, a visionary outlook and a fondness for tweed suits and bribery. The young Felicity Paraparap was captivated. As the member was leaving, she timidly asked him for a memento, Laughing, he gave her a silk handkerchief. Now, this keepsake was the beginning of Felicity Paraparap's mission in life. The foreman of the orphanage, Brother McGonagall, released Felicity in 1928. She immediately sought employment with all the safari tour companies and zoos in the greater metropolitan area, but was rebuffed due to her lack of experience. Undaunted, she stowed away on a tramp steamer. And I was thinking to myself, is there any other kind of steamer? They're all tramp steamers, I'm sure. And this tramp steamer was bound for Africa. And of the next 10 years, nothing is known for certain. Rumours came in mysterious ways, telling of a white goddess roaming the jungle, dispensing wisdom, justice and cunningly wrought cast iron trinkets. Others spoke of a white she-devil who roamed the jungle, initiating a reign of terror that lasted a hundred moons, wresting a hard-wrought dominion from the bosom of the tenebrous wilderness itself, and distributing cunningly wrought cast iron jewellery of exquisite construction far beyond the ken of mere mortals. Or, or something similar. In 1938, Felicity Paraparap reappeared in Australia, embarking on a lecture tour complete with slides and hair-raising anecdotes. An imposing figure, nearly two metres tall with striking copper-coloured hair, she was an instant celebrity. But despite her high-profile public life, her private life was a mystery. That was because she spent a great part of her time tracking and capturing politicians. For several months she bagged state politicians in New South Wales, luring them with intricate baits designed specifically for them basically brown paper parcels, 20-year-old scotch, diaries belonging to political allies. But for Felicity Paraparap, the thrill was always in the hunt, not, not the capture. Once she had the polly in her trap, she inevitably lost interest in letting go, none the worse for wear. She knew that any embarrassment was unlikely to harm the polly, as the incidents never took place in public. 
private embarrassment being an unknown quality in any politician. After a triumph involving the wily Albert Polworth, which took a large tin of milk of magnesia, a heifer and a collapsing awning, Felicity Paraparap felt the need for bigger game. So on she went to Canberra. Within weeks of arriving in the nation's capital, Felicity Paraparap had achieved her greatest feat of big game hunting. Smearing herself with the essence of safe seat voters so as to be undetectable to politicians, she tracked the entire federal opposition for three days until they were all in a caucus meeting at Parliament House. She induced panic when an announcement was made of a royal commission into parliamentarians' allowances, and then as the adult politicians tried to get back into their offices to destroy documents, she nabbed them one by one in hessian sacks and spirited them off to several locations where no one would look for them a classroom in a local high school, a public ward in a hospital and the back of a public transport bus. Some of the pollies did, however, manage to disentangle themselves from the sacks with the practised ease of a minister caught short at question time. But so disoriented and bewildered were they by their unfamiliar surroundings, they lapsed into comatose states. After depositing the final polly, the Shadow Minister for Viceregal Privileges, in a nearby old people's home, Felicity Paraparap tired of the sport and informed the police. The constabulary rescued all of the politicians, several of whom required extensive counselling and recuperation in the West Indies, London and the south of France. Felicity Paraparap was never heard of again, although in 1962 Prime Minister Robert Menzies was rumoured to have been found wandering in a municipal library after disappearing for several hours. No one was detained over the incident. That is, is, is actually really, really quite spooky because as you were reading that, the thought occurred to me that I think Felicity Paraparap would be quite old now, but I'm just wondering if there is a copycat out there. I have noticed, and I don't know if anyone else has noticed, every time there's an adverse finding or some sort of report that criticises ministers, they go missing. They go missing. Now, you could be onto something here, Stephen. Or maybe not a copycat. Maybe she's handed this down to another generation. It could be something like the Phantom, the ghost who walks. Could be, could be. Now, Felicity Parapara, whether she's handed down the tradition of politician hunting, making them go missing or not, she's certainly a legend of apocryphal Australia. Now, Stephen, it looks like you've got a geographical little vignette for us. Yes, I I like these obscure little places and uh, hidden away little treasures across the country. And today I'm looking at Shangri-Gala, a cold, forbidding and lumpy place. The ruins of Shangri-Gala rise out of the mists of time to greet the traveller in the Dardi Valley like fingers in a bowl of jelly. The nearby paper mill certainly adds to the mists, as does the cooling tower of the Watts Power Station. But apart from that, the mists are a genuinely natural, spooky effect. Shangri-Gala, or Tint's Folly, is a series of buildings commissioned by the Dardy Valley postal manager, Arthur Tint. He envisaged a grand array of cathedral-like buildings arranged within a natural amphitheatre some three kilometres across in the centre of the valley, just outside the main town of Gumi. In 1928, construction began on Tint Stream, but the money ran out somewhere between the completion of the plans and the first sharp intake of breath from the builder, just before the utterance, 
this will cost, you know, and the sad shake of the head. Undaunted but deterred, Tint scaled down his vision until it came within his financial reach. The result was something less than Tint had hoped for, but was still imposing. The rough-hewn blocks of solid stone carved from the very living rock itself were hauled into position using the most advanced horse of the day. The beams, crossbeams and uprights were fashioned from local gum trees and rolled into their respective places by workers using their finest boots. If one looks carefully, one can still see the actual pits and channels used in the construction of the buildings as huge logs were upended into the specially dug pits before the laborious task of winching them upright began. These beams, however, were soon deemed unsuitable as they were too bloody heavy, and once again, Tint was forced back to the drawing board. Two years later, he hit upon the idea of using paper mache as a framework for his vision, but he was dissuaded from this despite the best efforts of Ron Kalani, the manager of the paper mill. Deterred but daunted, Tint then decided to simply use more of the local stone in his construction. He'd visited the western region of Victoria and had been impressed by the rock walls cunningly wrought by convict labour. He opined that if convicts could do it, so could modern, skilled builders such as Corby and Sons, the local builders that Tint had contracted for the job. After a shaky start caused by the sun's inability to see where the bits joined up, the first substantial part of the construction was soon toppling over. This caused some real concerns for Tint and his team because none of them had dealt with fallen foundations before. After an interview with his bank manager, Tint reluctantly scaled down his vision yet again. If you wander through the mists of the valley, seeking the wondrous Shangri-Gala, you do well to recall the tears and heartache that went into the buildings, as well as the mortar or mortar substitute. As you contemplate the mighty spires and crenellations, spare a thought for Arthur Tint and his dream, and make sure you don't tread on any of the spires. 13 inches of sharpened concrete is no respecter of persons. Um, And watch where you sit as well. Now, Stephen, I love it when we look at visionaries. Visionaries are some of the, the best material we come up with. Australia wouldn't be Australia without these people, Michael. Yeah, they have ambitions, they have inspiration, they have far-sightedness, and so often something goes wrong. Yeah, I think the main problem is, unfortunately, they also have a budget. And now, following up, we have another geographical location. Exactly, Stephen. As the real estate agents say, it's all about location, location, location. So let me enlighten everybody about Powell's Swamp. Powell's Swamp lies on the outskirts of Dandando in South Australia's Riverland. It's the home of numerous birds and amphibians, and it's a stronghold of the endangered limping bullfrog. Powell's Swamp is also the site of one of Australia's most tragic archaeological digs due to a unique set of natural circumstances. The circumference of Powell's Swamp varies enormously, with its area changing rapidly. Scientists have been at a loss to explain the ebb and flow of the swamp, and local records show that these cycles rarely correspond with climatic conditions or the state of the nearby Murray River. So dramatic are the changes that the citizens of Dandando swear that the swamp can grow quickly enough to envelop a person riding on horseback. While this may be colourful tourist fodder, the changing moods of Powell Swamp have been responsible for the disaster that still haunts archaeologists everywhere. 
1981, lured by talk of preserved Indigenous middens on the eastern edge of the swamp, Dr Peter Gonzo Standish from the University of Gympie arrived with a large group of undergraduate students, postgraduate students and the usual train of archaeological rupees. Doing his best to help archaeology live up to its reputation as the sexiest science, Gonzo Standish's crew brought new life to the district as they drank, caroused and painted the town red. But when they got down to work, Standish realised that he had a job on his hands. In an interview with the Dandando Express, he likened it to working in the caldera of an active volcano. In the first month, two undergraduate students drowned. Soon it became standard practice to post one lookout for every three workers. Each lookout's sole job was to watch for what Standish called the Swamp Surge. Witnesses are few, but they speak of muddy waves rearing up from nowhere, of ground collapsing underfoot, and of frogs everywhere. And then there was the lure of the swamp. Gonzo Standish waxed lyrical on local radio just before the ultimate disaster when he described the siren call of the marsh, the tantalising lullaby of the bog, the algae-drenched allure of the morass. On the night of 20th September 1981, Powell's swamp struck. Despite the archaeologists' camp being 50 metres away from the edge of the swamp, it was swallowed by a wave of mud and water. Only one person survived, Nell Chatterjee. She later went on to write a best-selling book, Mud, Be My Friend, which was later turned into a miniseries, Dig Hard, and then a film, Deep Down. Amazing stuff, amazing. Has I'm a little bit surprised that the military hasn't got a hold of this and militarised it, and, or sorry, weaponised it. It's not, not a bad idea. We could uh, seed swamps and bogs and quagmires on a battlefront and then just sit back and watch the opposing forces get enveloped and swallowed up. I bet they do it now, we've mentioned it. Oh, yeah, one of those black ops sort of things. Yeah, yeah. They've listened to us, you know. I just assume that all of our podcasts are being monitored by you-know-who. Stephen, you've got a figure from the past for us to roll out. I'm a notable person from Australia's rich tapestry of, of, of history. This is all about Reginald Pilk. Reginald, or Reggie Pilk, was born just out of wedlock, a small mining town in southwest Tasmania in 1954. As a child, the young Reggie would often wander off to explore the mine workings, but they never were, so he usually returned a little wiser, a little sadder for the experience. He first came to the public eye when he accidentally shot the mayor of Grint while he scup. A huge manhunt was immediately organised. Hundreds of men and a few dogs combed the nearby hills. Reginald stayed right next to the wounded mayor, however, and he earned a full pardon for aiding in his recovery. Many of the searchers were never found. Soon, the, the bright lights of Hilly beckoned and the young Reginald Pilk set off. Like many another youngster of his time, Reg was attracted to the glitz and glamour that Hill, Hilly, population 187, offered. Hilly had bright lights, certainly, red, amber, green, but it also had that cosmopolitan flair that only the bigger cities could boast. Hilly had a dance hall, a nightclub, and a live theatre. Reginald found he could live among the theatrical set of Hilly without too much trouble. However, he soon saw the need for a decent eatery in the main street of Hilly, 
It had everything else the big European cities had, except for decent cuisine. Despite his lack of experience in the catering industry, or perhaps because of it, Reg went ahead and opened Maxime's BYO, All You Can Eat and a Slap-Up Treat. It soon became the place in Hilly to be seen. Flushed with success and food poisoning, Reg expanded his empire. He opened franchise outlets of Maxime's in the surrounding towns, arguing that it shouldn't be just the townies who get all the good tucker. Reg undertook a fact-finding tour of the famous eating centres of the world, Iowa, United States of America, Grinstead in the UK, and Narb in France, and also Nippet in South Eritrea. He returned to Hilly declaring that he'd seen the future of catering and it was called Takeaway. Reg set to work reorganising his outlets. He introduced the burger, B-E-R-G-A, a sandwich with meat in it, and spud strips. They were an immediate success. He diversified. Soon Hilly was awash in the takeaway greaseproof wrappings of the Big Macs, that's M-A-X, Big Macs without cheese, Big Macs without cheese and pickles, and Big Macs, exactly the same as the Big Macs, except it had an extra X on it. Reg argued that you could have anything you liked in the Big Macs as long as you put it there yourself. He just supplied the bread and the meat. He diversified again, opening new franchises called Tasmanian Fried Mutton Bird, with two secret herbs and spices, which turned out to be salt and pepper, and Noodle Hut, but neither of these enterprises really grabbed the public imagination. Bowels, yes, but not the imagination. Lawsuits flowed like an appalling simile of a local sewerage farm. The venture soon failed and the franchises shut their doors, much to the delight of the local hospital, although it should be said that the undertakers were not happy about it at all. Reg realised he should stick to what he was good at, so he immediately went back to his old stomping ground just outside Wedlock, where he spent his remaining years shooting the incumbent mayor of Grint. Stephen, I, I'm sort of staggered that when I look at it, this is our first gastronomy-related story. And Australia has such a rich heritage of food and drink, I'm surprised we haven't covered anything to do with it before. Yeah, that thought that thought struck me too, that given our, our wonderful food and, and liquor industry, that, that we haven't had too much of these, but I'm sure we'll, we'll find some more, we'll unearth some more. They will present themselves, I'm sure. And to finish off, Michael, this, or to finish off this episode, I understand you have another interesting individual. Interesting individual is right, Stephen. I'm going to bring to light the deeds of Cedric Playford, also known as Mesmo the Great, 1860-1938. Now, Cedric Playford was a successful stage performer at the turn of last century, appearing to great acclaim in theatres and music halls across Australia and New Zealand as a man of many talents. He found some success with his bird calls, as a contortionist and as the man with the talking moustache. However, his greatest claim to fame came as a football player. Cedric Playford had never played football before of the Australian variety, uh, but he was a surprise selection in the South Melbourne team for their annual grudge match against Geelong in 1907. This match became so famous that it was simply remembered as Mesmo's match. The game was a triumph for the creative thinking of the South Melbourne selectors, who named the balding paunchy 47-year-old Playford in the side. Cedric Playford had only one ability. He hypnotised his opponents. Literally. 
Cedric Playford had the power to cloud men's minds. Once he had the ball, the Geelong players seemed unable to even find him. In addition, he was a most effective man on the mark, convincing many Geelong players to kick the ball the wrong way. He also received what many considered a dream run from the umpires, although his 52 free kicks in the first half were simply a measure of his dominance around the ground. Geelong was extremely relieved when the halftime bell rang, as many of its players were behaving like chickens or were convinced they were stuck to goalposts. Unfortunately for South, disaster struck at half-time. Playford reacted violently to the liniment used by the players, although he later expressed surprise when told it was usually rubbed on and not drunk. Nauseous and dizzy, he was a shadow of his former self. He did not take the ground after three-quarter time, but South hung on to win by 16 goals. Cedric Playford never played football again. Rules were amended to ensure that offensive hypnosis was beyond the spirit of the game, unless the opposition is Collingwood. This decision curtailed several recruiting expeditions to the Tivoli. Cedric Playford went on to star in the short-lived musical review A Song, A Dance, A Torpedo Punt at Goal. Now, Michael, I get get really annoyed when sporting bodies change the rules just to curtail the natural abilities of, of certain players. This is famous. There is a, dare I say it, a history of this sort of thing. Walter Lindrum, the famous billiards player, was stymied somewhat when the authority changed the rules to curtail his marvellous ability. He found a way around it. And didn't didn't the authorities do something with Bradman, or am I mistaken there? Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did. No. Uh, it comes to me now. Wasn't the authorities doing something about Bradman? It was the opposition with the body line theory. And Cedric Playford, his his career was cut short when the authorities decided that, yeah, hypnosis, yeah, nah. Cut tragically short, I would have said. <laughs> exactly. I'd, I'd love to see some more of it. Uh, 50-year-old Cedric Playford striding the field and staring into the opposition's mind and saying, you're feeling sleepy, you're feeling sleepy, and then casually balking around them and driving home a drop punt from a distance of oh, two or three metres. And that looks like it's all we've got time for for this episode, Stephen. It's been another wonderful cornucopia of stuff from Australia's past. Stuff indeed. It's amazing just how much we've barely scratched the surface here. There's so much to uncover and we are the ones to uncover it. So until next episode, everybody, we'll see you later. Thanks very much. Bye. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?